This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Uh, today, I am joined by Mernesh Gurn, who is currently a PhD student in neuroscience at McGill University and has been lead or co-author on over a dozen scientific publications and book chapters on topics including psychedelics, meditation, daydreaming, and the default mode network. Uh, he currently has ongoing collaborations with leaders in the field of psychedelic neuroscience, including Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris from the Imperial College London Center for Psychedelic Research. In his free time, he also runs a YouTube channel called The Psychedelic Scientist, where he discusses the latest findings in psychedelic science in an easy to understand but non-superficial form. Anyway, Manash, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic to have you on. And as someone who is super curious about the state of psychedelic research, I uh, I couldn't be more excited about this conversation because I haven't I haven't had anyone else on the podcast when it comes to psychedelic science. So uh, I'm really excited about today. So let's go ahead and jump right in here. And I am super curious to hear about your background and how it is that you actually even became interested in science in the first place. Right. Uh, in science generally or psychedelic science? Well, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm interested to hear how it is that you found yourself even to become interested in science. Like where, right. where, where, where right. did it all begin for you? What's the genesis story from totally, your totally. scientific story? Totally. So for me, um, from a series of circumstances in my late teens or like mid-teens, 17, 16, 17, I got introduced to uh, meditation and Zen Buddhism and um, and just like Eastern philosophy and mysticism, and this kind of kind of made me a bit more introspective about my experience and you know questioning my assumptions about how I perceive myself and the world around me, and uh, kind of I was really fascinated about this idea from Buddhism of this like going through this kind of cognitive emotional purification in order to have a more clearer um, you know experience of reality and to minimize suffering and all the rest. And, um, you know, that eventually led me to read more into philosophy and to these other things. Um, and so I think my interest in science came from my own introspection to my experience and, you know, primarily interested in psychology, cognitive science uh, and neuroscience uh, later on. So it was more so from, you know, being fascinating about the, the range of potential experiences we can have and the way our perception can really alter our experience of reality. Um, led me to wanting to understand these things in more detail. And so um, it's motivated by that and various, like I came from a psychology philosophy background into neuroscience. So uh, kind of looking for a more objective grounding in these more airy abstract concepts um, based on my own introspection and my reading in these things. That's, uh, that's really, really interesting that you got involved with meditation at such a young age. Uh, for me, I didn't discover meditation until I was in my uh, mid to like later 20s. And I really, really wish that I would have discovered meditation 
uh, before then because I think it's incredibly valuable. And that's really interesting too, how that led you down a path towards seeking like a grounding in truth, like how, how can I quantify these things? And then that kind of pushed you towards science. So do you have, uh, are your undergraduate studies then in psychology and philosophy, and then you kind of moved into neuroscience or was it a neuroscience focused uh, undergraduate, but then you had like a heavy influence of psychology along with philosophy? How did, how did right. that whole thing work out for you? So, so my program uh, that I graduated from was called Cognitive Systems at the okay. University of British Columbia. So this is a cool interdisciplinary program that uh, combined you know, psych with philosophy with some computer science and linguistics, basically cognitive science. And, um, and it gave a lot of freedom in focusing on distinct aspects of that. So it's a broadest interdisciplinary curriculum with some like specialization. So my specialization, specialization within that was in psychology and neuroscience. Um, that's, really, that's really cool that you have a, an interdisciplinary program like that where you yeah. can kind of just piecemeal everything together that you're interested in, essentially. Totally. So, yeah, okay. Um, so I didn't realize you had a strong philosophy background. So I'm like right. really, really curious to hear a little bit more about that. Like what aspect of philosophy did you actually study? Did you, mm -hmm. like I'm really big into uh, like logic and things of that nature. I never mm -hmm. studied it formally, but I've done a, a ton of it informally. Right. I'm just curious about your philosophy background. Yeah, for me, I was always drawn to, I guess, epistemology and uh, epistemology. That, that's okay. most related to neuroscience, you could say, yeah. right? Like, how do we know things and et cetera. And also, I've always just been interested in metaphysics as just like a, as a side thing. Like I, I, you know, back in the day, I was really into Schopenhauer. I enjoy reading his stuff. Um, and I enjoy, since I kind of my introduction to philosophy, interestingly, came through, you know, Eastern philosophy uh, and Buddhist philosophy in particular, I guess, um, and later yoga and Vedanta and these Eastern traditions. And, um, you know, people like Schopenhauer really intersect and he, you know, explicitly refers to it in his, um, in his for example, his uh, The World as Will and Representation. He talks a lot about his influence from those traditions. And so I was always interested in um, kind of seeing the interactions in kind of cross-cultural philosophy and in terms of, yeah, metaphysics and epistemology mostly. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. So... I do. I don't recall exactly what metaphysics is. I know epistemology is obviously uh, the limits of like like what can you know, limits of yeah. knowledge, things of that nature. But I don't recall exactly what metaphysics is. Like what what branch of philosophy uh, yeah. is metaphysics exact precisely? Totally, it gets a lot of a bad rap these days because it's more you're talking. It's metaphysics. If you break that down, yeah. it's like beyond physics. It's that which you know. It's basically what's the nature of reality. I guess that's the main question. Oh, okay. And, and these kind of broad questions that go beyond what is it directly empirically observable, um, you know? So if you look into like Immanuel Kant, very famous philosopher, of course, uh, he had his whole metaphysical system that kind of, you know, uh, the whole idea that we bring our cognitive faculties create the world and we can't see the world as it is. Um, he was doing metaphysics there. He's trying to describe what the nature of experience or reality is um, at this meta level, hence metaphysics. Okay. Yeah, I know that with, um, you know, it's interesting as a scientist, and I am a huge fan of philosophy, but there's certain areas of philosophy where it's, it's not, I don't want to say it's not grounded in reality, but it's a little ethereal. I think that that's maybe that's perhaps a good word to use, <laughs> where it's slightly detached. And then as a scientist, you're kind of like trying to do whatever you can to take to take that lofty thought and philosophy and kind of ground it in reality. Yeah. But um, no, yeah, I appreciate all aspects of philosophy. I just I just couldn't. I couldn't recall 
uh, what, yeah. it, what precisely uh, metaphysics is. Is that, a, is that a branch of like ontology? I know that there's like, there are, is that like under ontology? Because I know like ontology is one branch of philosophy. And then yeah. that's kind of like the nature of reality type in of. In some sense, yeah. Ontology is a subcategory under metaphysics. I it's guess. under metaphysics. metaphysics. Okay, the other way around. broader category. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That's how okay. I see it. Yeah. Very interesting. Totally. All right. Well, okay. So how then, so you have this interdisciplinary research as an undergraduate, then you go on to get your PhD in neuroscience then? Yeah. Okay. Just a neuro neuroscience specifically. And then uh, did you go in knowing that you would do psychedelic research or is it something that you've kind of transitioned to as a PhD student? Right. Um, so my goal uh, was to study psychedelic research since the second year of my undergrad. Okay. Um, and like, you know, as I mentioned before, I got interested through spirituality and Eastern mysticism, mysticism and philosophy. And, you know, the more you read into these Eastern things and look into some new age work, you, you, you tread very quickly into psychedelics, you know, because <laughs> I, I learned about them, you know, as a maybe like 18, 19 reading um, about how they can um, catalyze these mystical type experiences and, you know, uh, facilitate personal transformation and really uh, help people gain the, a lot of the insights that they're getting from, you know, years of meditation or, or whatever practice. And so I was like, here's something that's stigmatized. That's kind of people think they're going to go crazy if you take it. But here's a large literature, you know, not only from like the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, but also in the last decade by like, you know, educated people um, saying that they have this huge potential for, you know, again, inducing mystical experiences and transformation. And then so I was like, people aren't acknowledging this. They're still stigmatized. People don't understand. People don't know. And I was like, you know, there's something there. This is important. And it's also just downright fascinating that the types of experiences they can elicit um, as well. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, very early on, I was like, I want to study this. I want to find a way to make it work. I actually started a student organization in my second year of undergrad called, I was at Simon Fraser University uh, in, in BC at the time. It was the SFU Psychedelic Society. So somehow, you know, as a second year student, I just created that club that I felt like it was an important thing. And it grew fairly well while I was there. And I also started a similar club at UBC when I was there later on, I transferred there. And I've just had this kind of, um, it just resonates with me because it ties together so many things. Um, and, uh, and so I had this like interest in them for, for many years before uh, deciding, I kind of, yeah, I knew I wanted to study psychedelics and I knew I wanted to go to grad school for psychedelics. I just wasn't sure about the discipline. And, um, you know, I think I left out is that during my undergrad, the last three years at UBC, um, I uh, volunteered in a research lab there. And this lab specialized in fMRI, so brain imaging research, mm -hmm. um, specifically focused on things like meditation, daydreaming and mind wandering. Um, and these other, you know, trying to, basically they were trying to rigorously study these really abstract airy concepts um, in a very scientifically grounded way. And, and the PI, the researcher there was really great. Her name's uh, Dr. Kalina Kristoff. Um, we have a great relationship still to this day. And, um, very open-minded, but like very rigorous um, in their approach. And, um, and that really influenced me a lot. And it made me kind of, you know, uh, see more easily see the feasibility of doing psychedelic research in a rigorous way and wanting to do that. So, Yeah, that's, that's really, really fascinating. So I am curious because I know that I, I haven't done any uh, reading into it myself, but I know that in neuroscience to kind of, I guess, 
ground some of these more airy concepts, like you say, they, they are using the MRI machine. But what is the difference between precisely like a regular MRI and then the fMRI? Because I don't, I don't recall right now. <laughs> right. So, so an MRI um, doesn't measure brain activity. It is measures okay. brain structure. Okay. And so fMRI typically is using what's called um, uh, measuring the blood oxygen level dependent signal. And basically, you know, um, you might know better than me, you're, you're, into, you're a physics student, but um, uh, basically um, oxygenated versus deoxygenated blood gives off a different magnetic signal. Okay. And it responds differently to magnetic perturbations. And so they basically use the, um, the differences um, in their recovery. Uh, it's called like the transverse relaxation time or something um, as an indirect way of measuring brain activity. So basically, you know, what MRI does, it uses uh, these mag magnets, magnets to see tissue density. And then in fMRI, it's using a slightly different thing where it's using looking at the differences in bl blood oxygenation and where blood oxygenation is an index of brain activity. There's more blood flow, more oxygen yeah. being used up, and there's more activity. So it's kind of... So you, yeah, you, you can see precisely what areas of the brain are being activated during these particular whatever it is you're trying to study so like whether it be meditation whether it be uh, somebody under the influence of psychedelics what part of the brain is being most active during those times versus your control would be not on the substance not meditating not taking a psychedelic or whatever okay yeah. Yeah. all right really really interesting okay so you knew pretty early on that you wanted to study psychedelics and you had all of the the training like you said you volunteered in the lab so then going into your phd uh, i'm assuming then like that was precisely what you went into with psychedelic research, correct? Like um, right off the bat from your, with your PhD or did uh, you do something else or? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because on one level, it's hard to do psychedelic research these days to get the funding yeah. and all the ethics because it's still uh, not fully accepted and acknowledged by the broader research community. Um, so what my advisor or my supervisor at UBC recommended was that you know, get your grounding in an area of neuroscience that's more mainstream and like credible to like the established researchers um, and, and um, use that as a means to then bridge out the psychedelics. Because um, in terms of just like your reputation, it looks better to um, be a person who has engaged with the mainstream issues and then who then subsequently sees psychedelics as this promising, interesting aspect of research and goes there as opposed to somebody who just goes straight into psychedelics. And, um, and so uh, I resolved, and also just like feasibility. I, if I were to study psychedelics directly, it would take a, many, like a long time to set up that study and get the things going if the institution doesn't have a record of it already. And, um, and I could go into like why I didn't go to an establishment that already did, uh, mainly because of funding issues and they're mostly in Europe at the time. But um, so I resolved to study the default mode network. So this is a network in the brain that's involved in a lot of the abstract uh, aspects of our cognition. So things like, you know, a uh, daydreaming, mind wandering, uh, remembering the past, imagining the future, thinking about other people's mental states. A lot of these like, like complex aspects of our thinking that you perhaps like define us as humans. And um, this one network seems to be involved in all of these in some capacity. So, and is there also, this network is also very um, altered by psychedelics, you know, in a way that's relevant to the subjective experiences. So I was like, I'm gonna focus my PhD on this network 
um, and just study it using you know standard cognitive paradigm standard approaches that I come up with um, and, and this very mainstream contribute to the knowledge on this network which is very relevant to psychedelic research because it informs it and also along the way I uh, sent a number of proposals to places like London where they're one of the lead uh, psychedelic brain imaging uh, research institutes there um, and on how to analyze their data and basically I have access to a lot of their brain imaging data on different psychedelic drugs and I'm also analyzing that for my PhD as well. Um, so I found a way to loop in the psychedelics. So I'm doing psychedelic research, but my main PhD that I'm conducting here at McGill in Montreal um, is around this network in particular. So this, uh, you said the default mode network, so that's primarily the focus, and then you were able to you know, get some psychedelics then in there as well. Mm. Yeah, I, that's interesting, the, uh, you know, the politics of all of it right now, uh, because psychedelics are still controversial. They are illicit in many countries uh, still at this point. Uh, here in the United States, I'm not, you're in Canada, yeah, and I'm not sure their legal status in Canada, but I know here in the United States, they're still illegal even though there's, yeah. still, uh, there's still some interesting work that's allowed to be done from a scientific standpoint. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious to dive a little bit into your research on default mode networks because uh, I, this is my first time I've ever actually heard of a default mode network. Okay. Um, I'm probably familiar with it, like you said, daydreaming, things of that nature, but I have never looked at it, I guess, from a rigorous scientific standpoint. So. What aspects of the default mode network are you looking at for your research? Right. So, hmm. so let me back up a bit and just say like the default mode network itself is just a collection of collection of brain regions, which have a tendency to work together in these abstract, you know, aspects of our thinking. Okay. And, um, and like, you know, the, the precise way in which the same set of regions can enable us to do so many different things is still like a matter of research. It's like, what exactly is it doing? Is there some overarching way we can understand how it's contributing to all these different things? You know, what are the exact set of um, aspects of our thinking that it contributes? And there's so many open questions, right? And so um, I'm primarily trying to look at kind of, I guess, maybe three things. My PhD, you could separate into three aspects, three different themes. So one is um, understanding, you know, um, what exactly comprises a default mode network? And this is, of course, something that's debated. It's very, you know, statistical. It's based on the analysis. And um, looking into what exactly regions comprise the default mode network and how they interact, um, just like in a general basis. Um, just understanding what is the kind of, we would call the intrinsic architecture or the structure of this network. And then another one is like, how does the default mode network or different subsets of it uh, relate to different behaviors? And have a couple of projects on that. And the third one is how does the default mode network respond to pertur perturbations um, by ingesting psychedelics, right? So, so those are the three aspects. So, and the broad overarching theme is like, how can we better understand this network of regions um, and how it contributes to our subjective experiences and aspects of our cognition or thinking. So uh, what, what, what brain structures are involved here? Like, are you talking about like the higher mind like in between, more primitive? Because I know there's like kind of like three general areas. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. You can have like the, the lower, like the brainstem area, then something in between, and then the higher mind or something yeah. like that, so, if I recall correctly. Totally. So I typically when we talk about the default mode network, we're talking about the higher mind, the cortex. Okay. And we're actually talking about the most advanced um, aspects of the cortex. 
So sometimes, uh, you know, one way to think of the brain um, is in terms of a hierarchy. You could start with very low level, like, you know, even the brainstem and basic sensory processes that we share with other organisms. Mm-hmm. And if we take it to the far opposite extreme, to the things that are uniquely human, uh, aspects of the brain that are uniquely expanded in humans, and that, you know, even primates don't have, like that's where the default mode network is. It's like at okay. the peak of this hierarchy. It's like the most abstract, complex things our brain can do, essentially. Um, this is why it's so fascinating because it's involved in those things that separate us, you know? Um, and so, and so, yeah, so it's, it's involved at like the highest levels of, of our abstract thinking, essentially. Interesting. So like the neocortex area, like certain structures, substructures within the neocortex. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's, um, that sounds fascinating just because, well, obviously you are your brain. Um, science hasn't been able to, you know, show that there's anything such as a consciousness. Um, that like your your who you are and your brain are essentially the same like they're not they're not separated right at least I think to the best the best science that we currently have says that like it's all the same thing so you know to think that you're actually like kind of diving in and looking at structures that are uniquely human uh, that kind of ties into our whole uh, the whole human experience I think that that's uh, I think that that's fascinating yeah, yeah. So, okay, so default mode network, and then you said that you're doing something that's tying into psychedelics. So are you just looking at how certain psychedelics alters this network then uh, through like fMRI studies? Or how's, how exactly does that work with your totally. studies with psychedelics? Totally. So I, I could back up and say like my primary interest, research interest in psychedelics at the moment is understanding I guess the brain mechanisms that underlie, you know, psychedelic experiences and how they can lead to these positive benefits that okay. we're seeing in these clinical trials. Um, and so, um, as opposed to specifically looking at, you know, how are they, or like, it's rather than looking at whether they're helping people in therapy, I'm like, how are they affecting the brain, and then how are they effect- helping people when they when they when they are helping people. So basically, what are the therapeutic mechanisms and what are the mechanisms of the experiences themselves? And so um, right now I have data of fMRI brain imaging data of people who are under the influence of psilocybin, which is a compound in magic mushrooms, LSD, and also DMT. Um, And these are all collected by guys over at the Imperial College Center for Psychedelic Research in London that I mentioned or that you mentioned in my bio. So those guys guys over there are the ones collecting the data and they're the ones really uh, spearheading a lot of the stuff. And for the time being, I'm just like um, collaborating with them on their data sets to analyze them in new ways. And so essentially, you know, I'm looking at, you know, how do these different uh, drugs, um, you know, affect the UFO mode network and also the brain as a whole in terms of, um, in terms of a variety of measures, let's say, and, and how does that relate to the subjective experiences of those people? So a lot of it is like at the one level, you know, analyzing brain activity, then looking at statistical associations uh, with their reports on their subjective experiences. You do like surveys, things of that nature. Like yeah, you ask them, you basically ask them how they're feeling. You do the fMRI. That's, uh, that's one of the experimental, um, part of the experiment, but then you also do like a survey component to see how you like the subjective subjective experience of the particular candidate is influenced. Yeah. So there's a number of questionnaires. Yeah. Yeah. Like okay. there's a number of them in literature that have been like validated uh, to measure different aspects of the experience, such as 
such as like the mystical component, feelings of oneness, of bliss, of contentedness, um, you know, uh, aspects, changes to our visual perception and, you know, seeing complex imagery and objects and scenes with eyes closed or eyes open. Um, and of course, things related to anxiety that can emerge as well, um, as well as, you know, uh, yeah, other just aspects of the experience, like, like audio uh, phenomena that you might experience too. Um, and there were a number of validating, validated questionnaires that I use widely in the field. So often they'll, like, you know, have them come in, um, fill out a bunch of questionnaires beforehand, do the brain scanning, you know, maybe even do stuff within the scanner, just like pressing a button, like one to seven, how much do you feel this? And then afterwards, a, a comprehensive set of questionnaires about their experience. And then we take all that data and then we, you know, analyze it in different ways to look at associations, basically. Yeah, really, really interesting. So, so it's just the three primary components you said. So, or uh, three uh, primary uh, psychedelics. Uh, you said DMT, psilocybin, and then did you say LSD as well? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I am. I'm really, really curious as to the general psychedelic experiences that people report between the different compounds. Mm. Like, what's the difference between a like a psilocybin trip versus a DMT versus an LSD? Uh, you know, are the visuals different? Is the oneness component different? Uh, from your research, what have you found with, uh, with the individuals who have participated? Right. From what I know of, of the data sets I've been working with, um, it seems that, uh, and this is, might be found in other research too, that psilocybin seems to lead to more mystical type experiences uh, more regularly or with greater, I guess, uh, yeah, frequency. Um, so these experiences of oneness, of a sense of being in a sacred experience of ultimate reality or something like this seems to happen. It happens with, with all of them, um, but more, more often with psilocybin for whatever reason. And, um, and, and uh, you know, it should be mentioned that the LC experience is like much more protracted. It's much longer than a psilocybin and DMT experience. Okay. Um, the most marked difference is between DMT and uh, on one side and LSD and psilocybin on the other side. Because DMT is this fascinating thing where it's like um, the experience lasts like 15 minutes. So like a typical experience for psilocybin is maybe four to six hours. With LSD, it's maybe around 10 hours. DMT is 15 minutes. So you take this oh, thing wow. and it's okay. an extremely intense, immersive experience of closed eye visual where people report... Um, entering into different um, spatial environments and interacting with disincarnate disembodied beings. Um, and like, who knows what is actually going on there, right? But like people report these experiences pretty reliably of um, feeling like they've contacted a different world and like are experiencing autonomous beings, which are telling them things or interacting with them. Sounds nuts, but this is very commonly reported. And um, you know, and so the DMT experience is very different from the other two. And, we find from the brain uh, research, for example, is that you know a lot of the brain changes are similar with DMT uh, compared to psilocybin and LSD, but the effects are much stronger. So it's just like a, a really extreme version of the other psychedelics, basically. It's like condensing it. Um, so yeah, so that's one fascinating difference. And then you know, and then the other differences between psilocybin and LSD are a bit more kind of nuanced in you in like in terms of you know, tends the tendency to feel restless or anxious, um, you know, the nature of the visual experience. Um, LSD is perhaps sometimes more visual. Uh, you get more visual imagery with eyes closed with LSD often. Um, but I, it really depends on many factors. And there's lots of variability between people too. So. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I had no, I had no idea that a DMT experience was only 15 minutes. And uh, DMT, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the primary component like ayahuasca? Because I'm familiar with like the ayahuasca, the shaman, like doing the trips and whatnot, like people go to, like either Mexico or they go to South America somewhere, but that's ayahuasca, right? Yeah. Like, when you yeah. talk about DMT, okay. Uh, I had no idea that it was so, so short, but you said it's very intense. So you get, yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically, I'm, I'm referring to smoked or in the studies, the intravenous DMT, um, which is, uh, yeah, like onset is within a few, like even 30 seconds, you start feeling it. Um, you peak after, you know, six, seven minutes. And then after 15, 20, you're kind of back thinking what the hell just happened basically. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a very, very intense and rapid experience. It's very fascinating. If you've okay. never heard of it, your viewers too, there's a really good documentary on YouTube. It was on Netflix previously called uh, DMT, the spirit molecule. Okay. Um, by this researcher named Dr. Rick Strassman, who did, it's basically a documentary talking about a study he did um, looking at the subjective effects of this drug, like in a scientific way. So. Interesting. You know what? I do remember coming across that and I think I added it to like my list. I was like, oh, I, I definitely need to watch this. And then I never got to it. <laughs> and yeah. then I think they removed it. But uh, it's good to know that it's still on YouTube for free. So I can definitely check it out. Uh, so LSD, you said eight to 10 hours. I can't imagine having a psychedelic trip for eight to 10 hours. That just seems exhausting. Yeah. And that's the, it's probably more like 10 to 12 for a lot of people, but yeah, oh it is, goodness. it is quite exhausting. And it's like, um, and it's just interesting, like trajectory too, because it's like, you will take it. Um, and it will take about anywhere from an hour to, to two to start really kicking in. And then maybe from three to six hours post intake, you're like peaking. And what's interesting is while you're at peak effects, it kind of, uh, what we found in like research and like many, many people obviously talking about their experiences is it comes in waves. So it'll kind of peak, intensify, go back down. You're like, Oh, it's the experience is done. Then it'll come back and then go back and for three hours. <laughs> and then, and then after that three hours, there's another slow, you know, come down over another, maybe mm -hmm. even three, four hours. So by the end of it, you know, it is quite exhausting. And, you know, so many reports of people saying, you know, they had rough sleepless nights, sleepless nights because they took it too late and all the rest. Right. So I think this is partially why uh, a lot of the therapeutic research um, uses psilocybin because it's, um, you know, four to six hours. It's like half the length um, and basically does very similar things. So, yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a, like a roller coaster ride from what you're describing. And I don't, I don't know if I would enjoy something like that. I mean, maybe some people do, but yeah, <laughs> yeah it does yeah. sound exhausting. Yeah. Uh, I had an experience one time in college with psilocybin mm -hmm. where I uh, indulged recreationally and I can't say that I, I don't think I, I, I didn't really like it, I'm going to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, the whole experience of not having control of your thoughts was very uh, unusual to me, very foreign and not something that I was a huge fan of. And I can't say that I had any sort of like strong, like spiritual type of experience. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was more of an anxiety inducing experience just because of the loss of control of thoughts. Uh, for a while, I thought I was in a video game. Everything was pixelated. It was just kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. So that, that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's my one experience with that because I was really, really curious when I was younger 
you know, and I would still probably try uh, DMT like an ayahuasca, like a shaman type of experience. Uh, I've never done anything like that, but I think I would be open to experiencing something like that. Uh, but I was curious when I was younger just to see what psychedelics were about. So I tried psilocybin, like I said, recreationally once, and I wasn't a huge fan of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can I comment on that? Yeah, it's interesting yeah, yeah. Because, because psychedelics, um, you might have heard this, is like the, the type of experience that you have and the character of that experience strongly depends on what, what we call a set and setting, right? Yes. Yeah. So a set is like, you know, what were your intentions for the experience? What are your beliefs around it? How did you prepare? What is your current like mental and emotional state? And setting is like, who are you with and where are you? How do you feel? Do you feel safe uh, interpersonally and like physically and all the rest, right? And so um, a lot of the times if people, you know, take it recreationally and aren't ready to have their, their conception of themselves or, you know, the world challenged, uh, that can be anxiety d- inducing, right? You're like, yeah. Oh wow, this is making me question my fundamental beliefs, and I'm, oh my relationship to my thoughts has been altered. It's like that's that's scary, you know. And they they try to resist it, and then they go in a darker place because they try to resist and deny the experience, right? And so I really think uh, you know these things are powerful and should always be done with like care and like uh, knowledge of what you're getting yourself into, because I think you know in these studies, obviously they they do tons of screening and tons of preparation work really help the, the, the patients be ready for that experience and um, able to fully let go into it. Um, so I think an essential aspect of the psychedelic experience is being able to let go. And of course, a lot of people like to be in control, you know, and it, that's why, but like the degree to which you try to maintain that control, the more you're going to be anxious. And it's kind of like a door that opens once you let go and you just allow yourself to trust the compound. Um, and then you get kind of then it becomes more spiritual and insightful and positive, you know? And, um, and, and, and this also ties back into meditation because one of the, I think, lessons of psychedelics is kind of, um, you know, uh, telling us not to be so attached and immersed in our mental life, in our thinking, in our sense of identity. It's basically pointing us to the fact that our relationship to our thoughts and our tendency to identify with them and our stories and our you know, conception of who we are is pretty tenuous. It can be, it can be like shaken up pretty easily with these compounds and it's a similar process in meditation. And so I think, you know, for a lot of people who aren't, you know, uh, have been exposed to meditation, exposed to these ideas, you know, the concept of um, letting go of your thoughts and not identifying with them and disengaging from them as something important is really foreign and that can be anxiety inducing. And so I think there's a, it's a, it's a very profound and radical, you know, experience for people who are not uh, accustomed to, to thinking about or reading about these things. So, I mean, yeah, but I think, you know, for people who are kind of done their research, know what they're getting stuff into and have an awareness of these things, it could be profoundly insightful when done in the right context. No, I, I categorically agree with the, uh, the environment is really, really important and kind of like the mental state that you go into it. I, I had no idea going into it kind of what I was getting myself into. I just thought it was just some way that you could alter your mind, like similar to alcohol or cannabis or something like that. And I would say that it's radically different than either alcohol or cannabis. Um, it's just definitely. it's its own way of altering your mind. And you definitely need to understand, have a little bit, of, you know, a good understanding of what exactly you're getting into and then making sure that, like you said, that the environment is set up uh, as best as possible because the environment is really, really important when you're experiencing something like that. 
Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm definitely open to having an experience like that again, you know, given the right, uh, given the right context, I suppose. Uh, and I don't want to, you know, bash psychedelics just because I had one bad oh, experience. Sure. <laughs> but um, I, I just thought I would share my experience with you because it was just my one uh, recreational experience with uh, with psychedelics, psilocybin yeah. in particular. I've never I've never uh, tried or experienced uh, DMT or uh, LSD or anything like that. Right, right. No, totally. I'm glad you shared it, right? Because I'm sure your experience is very common for all of. I'm sure many people just tried it in college as a thing and um, didn't think much of it and were maybe kind of frightened by it and now all this mainstream coverage on it again you're like wait like what's going on there right so it's good to you know uh, discuss discuss those kinds of experiences for sure no absolutely and what i am most excited about you know obviously psychedelics have their uh recreational component to them where you have these like profound experiences and you're saying that this is there is there like so when you take these larger doses or these uh let's call them recreational doses. I'm not exactly sure what you, what term you would use from a, uh, like within the scientific community, but let's, let's call them recreational doses. What, uh, you know, is there therapeutic components at doses that high? Because I also know, I also kind of want to dive into microdosing a little bit as well too, but mm -hmm. let's start with the higher dosage or maybe you call them standard dosages. Uh, do you, do you see real like therapeutic components at dosages that high? Yeah, in, in a, typically in the clinical trials, so there's been, you know, clinical research done on using psilocybin for uh, depression, for end-of-life anxiety and cancer patients, in alcoholism, tobacco addiction, um, OCD, and with many more things ongoing. And in these studies, the, you know, they use large doses. They primarily, if not always, use high doses um, with the idea that you're trying to catalyze these particular types of experiences um, which, which have been shown like empirically to have the best, um, effect on, on, on outcomes. So, you know, uh, in, in these trials, the people who experience the most reduction in the depression or, you know, are most likely not to, um, go back relapse into their alcoholism or tobacco addiction were the ones who had these so-called mystical experiences. Um, and these are often only available at very high doses, but okay. I, I, at the same time, this is not to encourage for people to do, you know, these high doses recreationally because you get into dangerous territory. I think when you go with those, these high doses, you can either go very deep into a bad experience or into these good ones. And so like in these contexts of these studies, there's so much preparation before yeah. um, a lot of stuff, you know, during the really, you know, uh, kind of craft the experience in a particular way um, that kind of best um, improve the chances of this positive experience. Whereas if you take these kind of high doses and just like are in a kind of unpredictable environment, there's some people around you you don't really trust, like that's like a recipe for disaster. Um, yeah, so, you, so there's a lot of time and effort that goes into crafting a good environment for the person to then experience, mm -hmm. well, essentially uh, to administer the, the medicine in, because you're, you're, I mean, you should look at it as a medicine, I guess, at that point, because that's what it's yeah. being used for as a medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's generally in like clinical setting, like you're in a hospital or perhaps maybe in a, a room in somebody's house that's been adequately prepared or something of that nature. So yeah, what's yeah. kind of standard practice? Yeah, yeah. For these studies, they um, usually have a building, either uh, sorry, a room in a hospital or a research institute where they basically design it to be like essentially like a warm, comfortable living room. Like there will be or a bedroom, I guess. So it will be like a bed where the um, patient will be lying down for the experience. It'll be like little like, you know, artwork around the room. It'll be very cozy and warm with a rug and, 
not like a sterile lab environment or hospital. Like they definitely avoid that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's supposed to be very comfortable, homely, warm, um, and you feel safe and secure. And the process of these studies is like um, they're lying on their back with eye shades on. So it's a totally internalized experience with a particular curated playlist. So you're listening to this music, you know, you know, instrumental, uh, often like classical type music, uh, depending on the study and the context. Um, they have their eyes closed, they're lying down, and they have two therapists, one male, one female, on their left and right. And basically the experience, uh, the patient is told to just allow yourself to flow with the experience, accept, let go, and go into it as much as you can. Um, and we're here to support you if you need it, but there's no active intervention from the therapist. So it's a self-directed healing journey that's internalized in this warm context. That's basically how they do it in these studies. Yeah, that's definitely not how I did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think there's probably a lot of people uh, who've experienced it recreationally that didn't put that much time and thought and effort into making sure that the environment was uh, appropriately set up. But from, okay, so from a therapeutic standpoint then, from your observations at these dosages, are you seeing like the most profound effects then like in addiction, like addiction recovery, depression, anxiety, things of that nature? Or where's like the greatest benefit for psychedelics uh, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because if you go back into the 70s, 60s, 70s, there were two schools of thought on how to approach psychedelic therapy. One was called psycholytic therapy. One was called psychedelic therapy. So psycholytic therapy was under the idea that you give these lower doses. I'll just give some examples. So with LSD, this would be a lower dose would be maybe 100 micrograms, maybe 200. Um, and these kind of, at these dosages, these subjects still have contact with you know, reality. They're not totally far gone. And the idea was that you're just amplifying the psychotherapeutic process. You're kind of giving them more access to their mind and their unconscious and these aspects of their, I guess, psyche that they weren't able to access usually in normal talk therapy. And so basically it's like a supplement to psychotherapy. That's psycholytic. And psychedelic was giving them like a really high dose, like four or 500 micrograms of LSD to catalyze these trend, you know, what we call transpersonal experiences. So experiences in which the individual sense of self is kind of attenuated or dissolved and you feel a connection to something greater than you and you kind of, um, you know, have fundamental shifts in how you, you perceive yourself and the world, um, essentially. And that takes a higher dose to achieve. Um, and of course, when done in this proper container. Um, so I think, and in the studies, well, I could tell you in the studies nowadays for, for tobacco addiction, for alcoholism, for depression, they're specifically empirically showing that the more they had the mystical experience, the more they had increases in their well-being, decreases in their addiction, decreases in their depressive symptoms. And so it seems, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily that the dosage is needed for a stronger effect. It's the particular type of acute experience that matters. So that's what, you know, differentiates psychedelics from other drugs. You know, you take an antidepressant medication and it basically works behind the scenes, changing the chemical balance in your brain and you start to feel better. Um, and you, nobody asks you like, oh, what was your, you know, what was your Prozac trip like? You know, people don't ask you that. You, you, there's no trip associated with these drugs. Uh, no experience, the experience is irrelevant. It's biochemical. And so with psychedelics though, the research suggests that the experience, the particular quality of the experience is essential. And so what this further suggests is that, you know, what psychedelics are doing is you're helping you make genuine insight into yourself and truly, you know, 
integrate past memories, have a new perspective on, you know, things that have happened to you in your life. And, um, you know, and that change in outlook and perspective and that insight is what gives you this genuine change and makes you, you know, into a happier person or what have you, right? Um, so it's really the, the quality of the experience that seems to be central. Um, and it's almost as if psychedelics aren't doing the healing. The psychedelics are catalyzing experiences which can lead to insights that can help you heal yourself. You know, I think that's an important, important distinction too. Yeah, so it's the actual experiences themselves that are kind of inspiring people, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, do you see any sort of like so for like repeated use? Do you see any sort of permanent changes in brain structure, like beneficial changes in brain structure, or is everything that you observed so far where it's just you know when you're under the influence of the you know, whether it's psilocybin, DMT, or LSD. That with the fMRI, you're only seeing changes <clears throat> when you're under uh, the influence, let's say, of, these, of, of the drug. Uh, or are there actual, like, permanent beneficial brain changes? So, for example, I know with prolonged meditation, I believe that you have enhanced brain matter that builds up over time, correct? I mean, you would know more about this than I would, but I know that there are structural changes mm -hmm. for those people who meditate regularly uh, and have done so for a long period of time. I'm just curious if you see something like this with psychedelic use. Yeah, I mean, to date, there's not enough research. Like, we, we just haven't done that work. But there is one study in looking at long-term ayahuasca use. Um, in people in, I think, Brazil or somewhere in South America, they did this study. Um, and they found that there's reduced gray matter in an area of the brain called the posterior cingulate cortex. And this is an area within the default mode network that I mentioned before. Um, it's involved in a variety of functions. But, um, for example, it's, it seems to be involved in, um, uh, you could say, uh, hmm thinking that is related to ourself, like self-related thinking. So when we're reflecting on our, our own self and who we are and our personal goals and things that are relevant to us personally, okay. um, that area broadly becomes more active. And um, it's also involved in various forms of daydreaming and mind wandering. Um, and so that's, uh, it's reduced in this gray matter, which, but then again, we don't really know what that means, right? It could mean that these people are less self-centered now, they have less ego, they're more kind of open. Um, it can mean that they have uh, quieter minds. They have less, you know, mental content coming up. But it can also mean a whole variety of things, so it's not clear. So that was one preliminary study. Um, but also what's interesting with psychedelics is there is uh, multiple studies now showing that they increase neuroplasticity in the brain. So basically, uh, they uh, initiate, you know, cellular uh, changes in our brain cells that help them make new connections and help them reorganize previous connections. And so, um, you know, not only are they catalyzing these, you know, transformative peak experiences, but they're also giving your brain resources to encode these in a lasting way. And so, although there's no like, you know, major longitudinal studies being done yet, um, that the research all suggests that psychedelics are poised to really help make lasting structural changes. And, but of course it always depends on how much the person, um, consciously tries to integrate their insights from the experience um, because it's very possible to have this peak experience gain insight into yourself and then a week later you're, you're still an asshole and you're still you didn't you know you didn't make the right changes based on those insights and so the idea is if you have this insightful experience 
you're getting a window of opportunity uh, to make lasting changes if you make that a practice for you. And I think for people who do do that, I'm like, you know, quite certain that there are structural changes that are happening because any you know, change in our behavior is going to be reflected in brain structure. So, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating, uh, particularly when you're talking about the neuroplasticity component of it and you know, how some people that have these profound experiences then go on and they make changes, uh, pretty significant changes in their life when it comes to like alcohol use, tobacco use, mm -hmm. uh, you know, th those are, those are like bad habits, if you will. So therefore, like, you know, if it increases neuroplasticity, perhaps it's easier than to break a bad habit uh, when your mind is uh, more um, malleable, if you will. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, I can definitely see the, how this would be a benefit to society over the long term, you know, if this was something that was implemented regularly, uh, particularly for people who have addiction issues. Um, you know, if you're able to increase that neuroplasticity and then, you know, encourage these people through these uh, mystical type of, of experiences to then want to change their life for the better that this could be a very, very valuable therapeutic tool. Totally. Like on a, on a larger scale. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, totally. And that's what the research is suggesting so far, right? So I, th I really think that, you know, uh, obviously a lot more research is needed to be done with, more with higher samples, more people. Um, but I think there's like huge potential for psychedelics to really just revolutionize psychiatry. And, uh, and the fact that they seem to be effective for a broad variety of disorders that we see as distinct also suggests that they're tapping into some deeper mechanism that's shared, right? Across different types of psychopathology. Um, so I think, yeah, it's like super exciting and there's so much potential there. And if this, uh, you know, keeps going the way it's going, it's going to be more available and it can, you know, facilitate a lot of um, healing and, and, you know, and help a lot of people who are just underserved or can't get over their, their addiction or what have you. So. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I am super curious to kind of talk about the, the microdosing component. So like that has been, I've heard about microdosing for years now. Uh, I think I first heard about, heard about it from, uh, unsurprisingly, probably on the Joe Rogan podcast yeah. uh, through, do you know who Paul Stamets is? He's a, he's yeah, a yeah. mycologist. Yeah. So he is a huge fan of mushrooms <laughs> and he has been on Rogan a lot. I've seen him on other venues as well always talking about big proponent of psychedelic medicine, a huge fan of just fungal medicine in general. Uh, like for example, he's a huge proponent of uh, lion's mane, yeah. which is something that I take fairly regularly myself and I think is a, a wonderful, mm. a wonderful fungus. Uh, but anyway, he turned me on to microdosing. And in particular, I think a lot of people microdose psilocybin, but I think you can microdose LSD as well. Uh, Tim Ferriss has like been hugely or excuse me, a huge uh, proponent of psychedelics and uh, psychedelic science, promoting psychedelics over uh, for the last couple of years, maybe two, three years now. Uh, and he uh, loves microdosing or talks about it a lot. So I'm just, I'm just curious as to what exactly microdosing is. Right. Um, so we can explain that to the audience, what exactly microdosing is and like which, uh, which psychedelics are traditionally microdosed and like what therapeutics uh, can you expect from microdosing right right so so microdosing is taking a psychedelic at a very small dosage which is usually um below the threshold of having an experience right so you it's not 
overtly changing your experience in a strong way, but there are these subtle effects that, um, you know, supposedly affect you in positive ways throughout your day. And so, you know, you know, as I mentioned with LSD, for example, the standard dosage is maybe 100 to 200 micrograms. A microdose would be 10 to 15 micrograms. Uh, or with psilocybin, it'll be like 100 milligrams of dried mushrooms, which is like a tenth of a gram, you know? So it's very, very small amounts. And, um, and essentially, the idea is that, um, you know, by taking in these small amounts, they, they tap into the same system in your brain, but to a much lesser extent. And this gives you... Um, you know, increases in your ability to concentrate, increases in um, your cognitive flexibility, your ability to be creative. Um, and this is, a, is like a kind of a somewhat of a mood booster. It just makes you a bit more positive, a bit more present and aware. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that's mainly, I mean, there's a whole variety of things people will report from having, from trying it. And it's actually, you know, as you mentioned, it's huge in Silicon Valley. A lot of software engineers and entrepreneurs use it to boost your creativity. Um, and get new insights into problems and also, you know, uh, boost your creativity and productivity to some extent. Um, it's kind of like a way of co-opting psychedelics into a way that, um, I don't know, feeds the capitalist system in some sense, makes you into a good, good, uh, I don't know, whatever worker or, you know, um, insight innovation producing person. Um, and so, yeah. And, and like, you know, there is still fairly little scientific research on it. Um, but there's more and more being done, like, you know, very actively. What's interesting is that, you know, despite all these anecdotal reports, people saying uh, all these benefits and perceiving it, and um, which they very well, you know, it must be real. Um, but a lot of the scientific research says, um, you know, uh, on one side, um, it's not that much better than placebo a lot of the time. Um, and when it does help us in our cognition and our whatever, um, it does so in ways that are different than what people think they are doing. So like, for example, there's studies where they kind of ask people to subjectively report, like, how did you feel this affected you um, in these various areas? And they also do quantitative measurements on their behavior and they don't line up. So like people are bad at introspecting and, you know, determining how it affected them. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, uh, although a lot of the research to date hasn't really, you know, been as the effect, the results or findings haven't been really uh, majorly in support of it as having a strong effect. But I think a lot of this research is preliminary. And I personally think we still need to uh, uh, develop different tools and methods to, to properly um, measure the subjective effects of microdosing. And I think, you know, just co-opting these other paradigms is, you know, of measuring cognition and whatever um, from very different places and trying to apply them to psychedelics might not be ideal and you need kind of specialized tools, um, that assuming that they are doing something over and above placebo, which is obviously an open question. So, so it has been studied scientifically a little at this point, the microdosing is what you're saying. And then right, like right now, unfortunately, I mean, there's not a whole lot of science available, but the science that is available says that it's not much better than placebo or it's not any better than placebo. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, yeah. More essentially. There okay. are positive findings showing that it's better than placebo. Okay. Um, but um, they're also like finding saying it's not and saying that, it, yes, it is better than placebo, but not in the ways people think it is. So it's kind of a messy thing, but it just reflects to like how early this is, right? And yeah. we need a lot more research with a lot more people, um, better tools um, to really say anything definitive. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, there, like you said, there are a lot of Silicon Valley types. I mean, I know some people, entrepreneurs, high-performing individuals who swear by uh, microdosing that 
you know, the creativity component, the energy component. Um, and then I think what I thought was most interesting and profound was the mental health component. So the overall feeling of just being better, uh, you know, less anxiety, less depression. So this is something that you see with psilocybin at higher, higher doses uh, with those, but you, but you would say that, I mean, in your opinion, and from what the science says, it's really about the experiences that induce the changes. So you don't have that at lower doses. So that would kind of, I guess if you actually saw if the science did indicate with microdosing that you actually got effects from anxiety and depression, then that might have to kind of change, I guess, the hypothesis for the higher doses that it's not, that it is actual, the chemical compounds and not so much the, or maybe it's a mixture of the actual chemical, chemical compounds and the experiences that people um, go through when they're on the higher doses. Yeah. Uh, because if you can actually skip the uh, experiences, which I'm not saying you know, which would have its advantages. Maybe the experiences would be, you know, people just wouldn't want to go through the experiences, but they still want to have the benefits of the compound of the, uh, of the drug. Mm -hmm. Then you could, then I could see the benefit of that. If, um, if you were actually to, if you were able to mitigate depression, anxiety with microdosing. So that would be, yeah, that would be huge yeah. actually, I would think. It, it is a really interesting thing because um, I, I think it is a mixture. There are two things going on. There's one, just like the biochemical action of these drugs seems to improve depression, improve um, what have you. And it seems like um, the more lasting and stronger changes are based on the experience. Okay. So there's two things. And there were actually, you know, I tweeted about this just yesterday. This really interesting research report came out of this woman who, um, you know, very, you know, uh, suffers from many different disorders, had a very hard time on like, you know, half a dozen drugs. Um, and um, they put her through rounds of LSD therapy. And what's fascinating was they gave her pretty high doses, but she did not report any uh, psychedelic experience. Um, so she would you'd be given 200 micrograms, which people go on, like, you know, you have an experience for that dose. But she's like, oh yeah, I felt kind of dizzy, that's it. But she had significant reductions in her symptoms uh, which lasted only a week or so. And so it seems like, you know, taking this drug, taking LSD, uh, not having a psychedelic experience, not having insight, all the rest, um, still lasted in these reductions, but they were short-lived. Okay. And so um, that was fascinating because that suggests, you know, um, that although the experience might be important for these lasting changes, which last, you know, six months later, as some of the studies found, um, you know, there might be a short-term benefit uh, from just taking it without the experience. And um, I think what we need, because there are, ex there are drugs out there um, that they're trying to, or sorry, there are people or companies trying to develop drugs which um, have, you know, like a psychic, like an LSD without the psychedelic experience. And there's obviously okay. a lot to say there and like, I don't know, who knows if it'll actually work out in any reasonable way uh, apart from short-term benefits. But, um, but it is an interesting thing. We don't really know how these drugs work and to what extent, you know, only the experience is important. And, um, and I can go, I can, it's interesting to think about the particular receptor system that psychedelics hit. Um, if you want to go into that topic, which I hope I won't get too technical, technical but it also suggests why, you know, smaller doses or a lack of an experience uh, could still po make positive changes. But yeah. No, yeah, really, really interesting. And it is probably most likely multifaceted based off the evidence, like you said, uh, where you have you know, an actual biochemical efficacy there going on where 
it's actual compounds doing work, then the experiences are doing work as well. So it's a multi-pronged thing, which is kind of how it goes normally in life, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Systems are incredibly complex. It's usually not just one. There's usually just not one thing going on. It's yeah. usually a multitude of things where, you know, there may be a dominant factor, but then there's a lot of things going on that make up that 100% of, mm -hmm. uh, of change or whatever the experience may be. Totally. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens as more research becomes available with the, uh, with the microdosing. Because again, like I said, I mean, for years now, I've just heard about the anecdotes pouring in. And you know, obviously anecdotes are the weakest form of scientific evidence. Some people don't even consider them evidence, but they are great starting points for the scientific process where you go and then you design more rigorous, uh, more rigorous studies, figure out, hey, what is going on here? Is there, some, is there efficacy beyond placebo? And it's nice to see that these studies are being done. It is showing that there are some benefit, but clearly more studies need to be done because it's still in its infancy. Yeah, totally. It's very exciting and it's hope that, uh, for example, by the time I'm done my PhD, funding will be more accessible so I could do this stuff without too much trouble. Um, yeah, it seems like we're on track for that. So in the next, you know, I think 2020, if, if we don't destroy ourselves at the end of it or something, I think it'll be a year <laughs> of psychedelics and there'll be a lot of, uh, people are going to see psychedelics more and more in the media and um, as a potential option for them to, to engage in. Uh, I think, you know, it's going to be huge in this decade, I think. Well, it's been uh, fast-tracked by the FDA. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's been fast-tracked as like a, a breakthrough therapeutic by the FDA. So there's a lot of very, very exciting news coming out about uh, psychedelics from a therapeutic standpoint. You know, I was very excited about cannabis being legalized both from a medicinal standpoint and then a recreational standpoint nationally. I still, I'm, in most states, I mean, most states have it legalized medicinally uh, as well as recreationally now. I don't think it is legalized on a federal level yet, but uh, I think that's just a matter of time. As soon as we get some younger politicians in office, they'll legalize it on a federal level. And I was yeah. very excited. Yeah, I was very excited about the therapeutic components of cannabis. Obviously, everyone's aware of the, uh, aware of, I would say most people are probably aware of the recreational, recreational uh, uses for cannabis, but then the, the medicinal uh, uses for cannabis particularly when it comes to like pain and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. However, when it comes to psychedelics, like I'm kind of just blown away and like super excited about the medicinal or therapeutic components of psychedelics, just because of the, what seemingly from, from the results coming out so far, the profound health effects that can come, uh, particularly when we're talking about like mental health uh, from, yeah. from using, from using uh, psychedelics. So I'm very, very excited about that. Totally. Anyway, I was just curious as to, you know, do you have any thoughts about why you think that psychedelics were, you know, they're currently still illegal in many places and why they were illegal for so long and it has taken us this long from, you know, to, to even be able to study them? I think that they were allowed for a while to be studied by the scientific community, like in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, somewhere around there. Uh, but then it kind of fell out of fashion and scientific immunity wasn't allowed to touch them. And now we're kind of in another wave of like the psychedelic renaissance where I think that we actually will see widespread broad legalization of psychedelics in the immediate future. Uh, just because the evidence is undeniable at this point that there's serious therapeutic, therapeutic value to, to having these available on, and on the market legally. Totally. Yeah, I mean, in the 50s and 60s, there were like over a thousand uh, studies done with, I think the number is like over 40,000 
subjects or something crazy. And there were many international conferences. It was huge back then, right? Um, but it was cut off, I think, in 67 by Nixon uh, in the States in that kind of, you know, halted stuff. It was mainly, you know, it's a broad variety of like sociocultural factors, right? Uh, a lot of, you know, for example, people who went and, you know, had these missile experiences didn't really support the Vietnam War after, you know? And people were kind of revolting against the, the consumerist narratives of uh, the 50s, of the corporatist, corporatist, corporate, corp, corporation. Anyway, the whole capitalist structure, <laughs> they were revolting against it and weren't like good, you know, consumerist citizens anymore. Yeah. And revolting against the war. And so they wanted to shut it down, I think, mainly for political reasons. But even though at that time as well, there was a lot of suggestive research for, you know, uh, clinical applications for alcoholism and depression and all the rest. Um, and it was a shutdown for those reasons. Um, and also because recreation use kind of grew out of proportion and, you know, um, was a lot of reckless use back then as well for various reasons. And then because of that, it got shut down. And now it's just like, um, I guess the kind of inertia of drug policies and the, and the difficulty of overdoing these things, uh, kind of overriding and changing these policies um, it has lasted for a long time. But I think now as the, as the research piles up and there's more and more evidence um, suggesting that they do have a, a therapeutic potential, you know, things will change for sure. Because right now they're still listed in the same category as things like heroin uh, and meth. Uh, as being, you know, highly abuse, you know, high abuse potential, no therapeutic value. It's not even worth, you know, uh, researching because it's just like a bad drug. That's how things like psilocybin and LSD are categorized. Um, but obviously, you know, that's nonsense. And it was known that it's nonsense in the 60s, like, you know, half a century ago. And so it's like very ridiculous. Um, but I think, again, in the next five years, or as you mentioned, psilocybin is a breakthrough therapy. They're trying to get that available to psychiatrists, um, you know, before, you know, midway between this, uh, in this decade. So, yeah, things. You know, yeah, it's absolutely crazy to me that it's in the same class as heroin, because obviously heroin is an opioid, incredibly addictive. And above and beyond that, we have opioid derivatives freely available on the marketplace. And the pharmaceutical companies were active in essentially turning here in the United States, at least in turning a good chunk of the American public into addicts, into opioid addicts mm -hmm. and uh, are responsible for creating, I, in my opinion, one of the worst sort of substance abuse problems that this country has seen in decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. it's, it's, yeah, it's really, really a shame and they're not going to be held to the level of accountability that they deserve, which is that they're essentially, they turn doctors into drug dealers and that they knowingly overmarketed to non-target groups in order to increase sales and essentially kill people. They kill yeah. people for, for profits and they're gonna get fined, you know, they get, they get fined like you know, a few billion, like three to five billion dollars. I think it was Purdue, I was looking into it, like one pharmaceutical company but they got fined like three to five billion dollars or something like that because of their role in the opioid epidemic, but they made 40 billion. It's like, so yeah, these people, sure. like they're not gonna go to jail or anything like that, even though, you know, what you could, you, you could argue that it's crimes against humanity to a degree where they've created, you know, it's not genocide in the same degree as what we've seen in the past, like what happened in um, like Myanmar and, uh, what happened in, uh, in Africa and what the Rwanda, things of that nature. But you have, you have one organization essentially killing 
people, knowingly killing people, even though yeah. it's not with machine guns, machetes, et cetera, but knowingly mm -hmm. creating addicts out of people and killing them. And then you find them, you know, a fraction of their total profits and nobody goes to jail, nothing. I know. It it's is, it's, it's mind blowing to me. Yeah. And yeah, tying that into the heroin, opioids, and the fact that you have psilocybins, which have clear therapeutic value. Uh, yeah. And because potentially, you know, this was causing people to not go along with the traditional capitalistic imperialistic narrative that then they were, then they were outlawed or yeah. that, you know, they put the kibosh on scientific research. So totally. yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's infuriating. So that's a, uh, so I don't, I used to embrace a lot of conspiracy theories when I was younger, which mm -hmm. is part of the reason why I started the intelligence speculation platform was, you know, help people think better because there's a lot of conspiracy theory nonsense. I'm sure you're yeah. uh, familiar with that based off of, uh, you know, going through the pandemic and seeing all of the fake news and like various conspiracy theories uh, cooked up. But with psychedelics, you know, we have decades of evidence here, which it looks like it may be an actual conspiracy against, against, psychedelics to, to, uh, to try to keep them off the marketplace because we, want, we don't want people to become too free in the sense that we want them to listen to mm -hmm. the traditional narrative better. Yeah, I think there's definitely something of that nature going on. It's like almost undebatable at this point. Like definitely yeah. that was part of Nixon's uh, uh, motivation originally. And there's even stuff of him like saying it, like recorded of his voice. Um, uh, basically, you know, saying that it's something they need to squash and, you know, the actual research potential is irrelevant, but they're causing people to go against their own agenda, right? So, yeah, I think definitely something of that nature, you know, has happened. Um, let's just hope like nothing derails this next renaissance, but so far, so good. Yeah, I hope not. Uh, particularly, you know, with the FDA coming out saying that we need to fast track this for breakthrough, breakthrough therapeutics. Yeah, you, you are seeing like some very, very big names in the entrepreneurial space. For example, Tim Ferriss, like pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into mm -hmm. trying to get these things into the marketplace. You have big names like Mike, uh, Michael Pollan uh, producing, you know, he did a documentary. He, he wrote a book. He talked on a bunch of very popular podcasts about the therapeutic value of psychedelics, I think it's an unstoppable force at this point, mm -hmm. uh, similar to kind of like uh, renewable energy. So for <laughs> renewable energies are at this point unstoppable because they're in the marketplace and cheaper than coal and gas. So mm. yeah. once you, uh, once you reach like a certain point, like a critical point where, you know, it hits the marketplace, it becomes cheap, or you have a lot of people, the right, the right names promoting something, uh, it just becomes an unstoppable force. So I think that, yeah. I think this time around uh, psychedelics will, uh, hit the market, become legalized, and that humanity will finally be able to take advantage of their uh, therapeutic potential on a wide uh, on a widespread scale. Mm -hmm. I think so too. Yeah, the only concern these days is how the for pro for profit model will work, and yeah. you know whether these companies will be coming at it from the right perspective, which is already a concern of many people, right? Well, you always have to be worried about capitalism adulterating something right uh, so if you can make money and you can figure out how people can make money off of it while still helping the general populace uh, that is kind of a win-win situation mm -hmm. uh, but let's hope it's not too adulterated in the process yeah. and that they I, I don't know what they can do from like a patenting standpoint if they can patent i don't know if you can patent the actual compounds themselves i don't think so i don't just like you can't patent cannabis you can patent like cannabis derivatives uh, you can't patent, I don't think, like heroin, like the poppy seed or something like that, but right. you can patent opioid derivatives. So they might do something of that nature, but ultimately the, the natural strain won't, won't, 
won't be patentable. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see. You know, I at this point, uh, you know, I don't uh, I, I don't hold the marketplace to very high integrity because it's profits above everything else. That just, mm -hmm. just seems to be how it operates. Yeah, so yeah. hopefully, uh, I mean, hopefully it works out well. I mean, yeah, I think I think a great first step again would be just mass legalization of it, and then go from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Or well, I think yeah, be interesting because like. At the same time, I think right now it's decriminalized in these different states, not legalized. I guess there's a difference there, but I think the concern is making it too, making people think like now we're allowed to do it so I can go casually do it with my friends. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so I think at this point, a really important thing is psychedelic education. Uh, and yes. That's making sure people know what these, you know, as it's becoming more available and people are saying like, oh, they use it in therapy. It must be fine for me to do it in my bedroom or, you know. Uh, when it's, it's, a, it's an intense experience, you know, it's not something to get into lightly. And so I think these days, yeah, a really important aspect of this whole thing is making sure the kind of av availability, you know, and uh, quality of psychedelic education is keeping up with the accessibility um, of these drugs. I mean, that's really No, important. yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a fantastic point. That's a, that's a, a really, really good point. Uh, because that's not something that happened with cannabis, because I, I think most people don't have to worry unless you eat like a just a ton of cannabis or something of that nature don't really have to worry about having like a really really bad experience like you can happen actually fairly easily if you just don't if you don't uh if you don't uh prepare properly mm -hmm. uh with psychedelics so yeah i categorically agree with uh, the psychedelic education and to make sure that you know when it is legalized uh recreationally that people understand what they're getting into and mm -hmm. there is an educational component that comes along with it. I mean, I'm hoping that there's a, a big enough gap, uh, lag between medicinal legalization versus recreational legalization that people have a good understanding. And I think that that would actually be a prudent move on the behalf of like governing bodies to make sure that there's a good enough lag there so that the general populace kind of understands what these, uh, what these compounds are capable of and how to be responsible with them. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, definitely, I think that'll happen. Like, it'll first be available to psychiatrists only in particular yeah. context. And then, you know, I think it'll be a number of years before it starts being available otherwise. So, yeah. And, and I think that's responsible based off of what you've told me about how, you know, you need an educational component to it. Definitely. There's a, yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely a good way to go about it. Mm -hmm. But anyway, Manesh, I mean, it's been a fantastic conversation. I didn't know if yeah. there was anything else that you wanted to uh, touch on, but uh, we've, we've covered a good number of things. I don't have any more questions that I can think of. Yeah, no, this has been a great conversation. I think one thing I could give a little shameless plug for myself. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. interested in learning more about psychedelic science, I did start a YouTube channel called The Psychedelic Scientist. Uh, and I'm really active on Instagram too, under that same name. Basically, it was my way of kind of, you know, sharing this research to the world in a way that people, that like a lay person can understand, but that isn't like sensationalist or, you know, watered down like a lot of media treatments. So I try to find this right balance between, you know, being informative and being, you know, staying to what the research actually tells us uh, without being too technical. Um, so I highly recommend if you're interested in these things, check me out, The Psychedelic Scientist on YouTube. That's yeah, absolutely. Do you, um, do you have any other um, social media? You said you, you mentioned you're, you're a little bit active on Twitter or is it just Instagram and YouTube right now? Yeah, so for the Psychedelic Scientist page, I'm mainly on Instagram and, um, and YouTube. For my okay. personal Twitter, which I tweet from, it's at mgurnneuro. Okay. Uh, so M-G-I-R-N-N-E-U-R-O. 
Um, that's my personal Twitter where I tweet stuff. There is a psychedelic scientist Twitter as well, but I'm less active on that. So. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, for those of you tuning in, definitely check those out. I'm going to make sure to link to all of those in the show notes as someone who is a huge fan of uh, science communication. I, uh, I am definitely encouraging you to go look at that. And particularly because if you don't know anything about psychedelics, you know, it's important to have a foundational understanding of what these compounds are, what they're capable of, uh, just because it looks like they're going to be onboarding here and be available within the next five years or so. But thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe, hit that like button, and until next time. Cool.